The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Good morning, everybody. Paul Rudy's On the Money. We're here the second, fourth Tuesday of every month on WDWS. I'm here with my regular guest, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, good to see you. Good to be here. And certified financial planner, professional Ryan Repka, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. Call in with your questions to 217-356-9397. Or you can text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your your question to talk at WDWS.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Taxes, 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 Fred. That's all we're reading about. (laughs) I think, uh, you know, I'm getting a lot of questions naturally from clients. Of course, investors are always looking for a reason to fear the next thousand or two or three thousand points down. Uh, This is fuel to the fire, I guess. Right. On the other hand, though, I don't think I've ever seen this my whole life, uh, such unbridled optimism about the economy. Yeah. Uh, everyone, uh, conservative, liberal, whatever, uh, think that uh, uh, the next several months is going to be good and the end of the year is going to be gangbusters. So it makes you uh, worried a little bit that expect it may still be good, but it may not be as good as people expect. So uh, I'm a little bit uh, concerned about uh, whether the the uh, vision here will be fulfilled. So, like, I, it's not the same, but, you know, if everyone expects the stock market to go down, right. it probably is not going to go down. If everyone expects it to go up, it's probably not going to go up. But this is not the same kind of thing, but it certainly uh, is setting us up for a, uh, a potential disappointment. Yeah, it's easy to conflate also the near-term performance of the stock market and the yeah. near-term performance right. uh, of the economy. Both, of course, are not all that predictable. But just, you know, last year was the classic, the poster child for it, you know, uh, universal pessimism, but yet the stock market uh, reached all-time new highs. So is that maybe a potential setup that, you know, maybe we get all the economic excitement everybody's talking about, but people are bewildered that how come the stock market is not? Yeah, I I, I suspect it it won't uh, shoot up if it fulfills its uh, promise, it'll probably uh, just move along in a normal way. If it doesn't, maybe some downside. But again, I, I learned something the last couple of days uh, about how vigorous the, uh, the stimulus is. Uh, I listened to a de- uh, debate between uh, Paul Krugman and uh, Larry Summers, two uh, most famous economists. And it turns out that uh, the expectation is that we're, or the, the, the Reading is we're down about $25 billion a month in income. So compared to where we would have been without the um, COVID situation, income is down about $25 billion a month. But yet the government is pumping in $100 billion a month to make up for that. So there's, yeah. there's a huge infusion of, of purchasing power. Uh, again, uh, uh, Summers thinks that the uh, $2 billion stimulus bill is about a billion dollars, a trillion dollars is about a trillion dollars too much. So there is this lingering fear that uh, sometimes someplace is going to come back to haunt us and we may have to start worrying about an overheating economy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a risk too, right? Sure. It's not just the recessionary economy. We do, historically speaking, we've had periods where we've had overheated economy and high inflation and you know low yeah. production. Well, there's a, a famous saying by uh, 
Richard Nixon, who you probably don't want to necessarily believe all the time, but anyway, he said the most dangerous time in a crisis is when you think it's over. So the, the situation now is that uh, we think the crisis is over, but yet we're not making the adjustments that we need to make, that, as we can't go on forever the way we've been going in terms of uh, unemployment compensation, paying people's um, lost wages, plus throwing in a check for two or $3,000 every once in a while, uh, is not going to be able to be sustained very long. So at some point, we have to start making some choices about get, getting back to a, a more normal kind of situation, which means that uh, uh, you, you can't fully compensate people who are unemployed. You, you have to have people eventually start paying their rent again, a whole, a whole host of things. You can't wait, college students or college uh, students, who ha uh, former students who have debt can't wait forever to decide whether or not they're gonna start paying their, their college loans. There are a bunch of things that uh, were suspended probably for good reason during the crisis, but we have to make some longer term harder decisions about those uh, now and in the f next uh, several months. It's hard to turn some things off, isn't it, once you yeah. get them started? And there's a lot of talk that maybe some of these programs are going to be perpetual. Well, also, there, there's a – it's not just an economic issue. It's obviously uh, more, more a, a political issue. Uh, in this debate I was talking about, Krugman said one reason why um, – the uh, Democrats lost Congress after Obama was elected back in, in 2008 uh, is they, they didn't come strong enough with the, the stimulus program. And they said now that's not going to happen again. If we're going to err, we're going to err on the side of way too much rather than too little. So there's a, a, a strong and political, political incentive to, to keep it going. Uh, so, again, there's kind of a ratchet effect once you start a program uh, you can't say, well, I'm going to turn it off again and go back to where we were before. It's very difficult to go backwards. Yeah. I want to talk about that in a minute. And, you know, and, and an interesting article from Ed Yardeni, uh, a really bright economist, and it mixes in a number of things. And then an article by Brian Westbury talking about inflation that's already starting to, to tick up. But, Ryan, I have uh, a text here. Question for Rudy Wealth. My wife, and I'm going to make you answer it, right? Because I'm reading it. You think I can comprehend when I'm reading? It's oh, no. always a struggle. Okay. My wife and I are going to inherit about $300,000 from selling a farmland. Congratulations to them. We're both in our 40s, so they're young folks. To you, they're probably old folks, right, Ryan? <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to look. <laughs> you know, it's all right. Getting closer and closer to 40 myself. It looks like we're going to pay. So they inherited 300000 Looks like we're going to pay around twenty-five thousand capital gains, so they'll have about two seventy-five uh, uh, capital gains on that money. We're debt-free. Well, that's wonderful. We have two girls, ages ten and seven. Again, wonderful. Uh, we have five twenty-nine accounts for them, and plan to put money in both accounts when we receive the money. Uh, I take it maybe they're even going to you know really jam them up. That's probably my guess. We plan to keep some of the money in savings. Good idea. It's always nice to have. Uh, I'm editorializing here, not reading from it, but it's that's kind of an kind of increase that emergency fund. I think it's if the pandemic taught us anything, anybody's job is at potential risk uh, at the whim of certain decisions. Um, but we're torn to what to do with the rest. Both of us put between 10 and 15 percent of our 401k salary. I mean, so even the lead up to all this is a no debt couple. Mm -hmm. They're just inherited more. They've increasing buffering their savings they're already putting in their 520 i mean they're doing everything right uh, on paper uh the advice uh what to do with the extra 100 to 150,000 we'll have left over please have dr gertz comment on oh this is another i think the same people 
I'll get to that after. Remind me to, to the last part of the text. So they have a hundred. They're doing everything right. Sounds like they have all their bases covered. Uh, I guess one would want to make sure that they also. My initial thought outside of the money is make sure that you're protected in case one of the two of you die prematurely or both of you. So there's probably well we'll, we'll go under the assumption, Ryan, that they've they're also because they seem to be so responsible, I assume they have that covered too. So with the assumption that the insurance is there for any gaps, uh, what does a 40-year-old couple who's probably going to live another 50-plus years do with this extra 100 or 150000 You can do it at the big level uh, allocation or if you want to get specifically like what particular type of accounts are already in 401k accounts. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't. We don't know what their income is, or so whether they could, right. you know, do the Roth, you know, uh, IRAs outside of that. So maybe generically. Yeah, I think from a high level, you just look at well, have you covered your bases? Which from the tax, we can tell that they have. They they don't have, you know, big debt issues. We'd normally recommend servicing debt first if you have like high credit card debt. If you have like higher uh, higher rate debt from other things that maybe you had like a you know, a home equity line of credit or something that had been a higher rate, try to knock those higher rate down. Of course, they don't have any debt. And so. they don't have it. So, right. like, normally those are the, the areas where you start. Right. So for this couple, um, the money's already, you're going to have all this money tax-free to the extent possible. Recommend considering Roth IRA contributions um, as long as you're not phased out for making those contributions because what that will do is it allow all of those dollars to grow uh, not only tax deferred, but assuming you just meet the small handful of requirements, you can pull out all those dollars 100% tax free down the road. And if they can't, well, they could, should they consider what's what's in the past been called a backdoor Roth? Yep. So a, a backdoor Roth is merely a mechanism by which you're just trying to circumnavigate the the tax rules, and it is it is tax legal. There's, it's not like this is some secret. That to seems the IRS. to be the consensus. So we don't want to give out tax right. legal, but it seems to be pretty commonly accepted that the last congressional changes basically said, hey, there's nothing wrong with doing a backdoor Roth. But of course, you want to talk to your own CPA about that. What is a backdoor Roth? So look, I don't qualify. My wife and I don't qualify to do just a traditional Roth IRA. So what you do is you establish a uh, a non you know, a um, non-deductible IRA, traditional IRA. So you don't get a deduction for it, but you would get tax deferral of the growth. And then you let some time go by, and then if it makes sense, you convert it to. You're allowed to convert it to a Roth. Now there's some caveats. If you have a bunch of IRAs already, mm -hmm. you know, the, so you have to look into that um, because then you have to do it pro rata, and so there can be some real tricks to it. So you just there's certain hoops you want to make sure that it's sensible, but it's potential to store up tax-free money. Well, it's even better because uh, you avoid the, if you put it directly into a, a Roth, you probably have to pay uh, tax on it if it comes out of your income. Uh, but if you do it backdoor, well, you're Illinois, still paying your tax. Oh, no, the state of Illinois. The state of Illinois doesn't, uh, you might say 5% that way. You're right. See, Fred? Yeah. Yeah. That's so smart. I'm going to let you answer the next question. Uh, same, the, same, <laughs> the same question, the uh, same answer. Uh, I suggest that they uh, phase in their uh, 529, not do a big chunk all at once. Because you get up to $20,000 a year, you get the 5% 5, 5 uh, mm -hmm. state, uh, 4.95, whatever it is, a state uh, benefit. So right. doing it 
in chunks. Might so be. if you were going to put in forty thousand, you wouldn't. You'd put in twenty this year, and then twenty next year, right. and so you, at least you pick up the thousand dollars effective cash right. benefit from uh, from doing that. Yep. So to the extent it's possible, a Roth IRA would be a, a possible recommendation. And then if let's say that's not possible, or you just fill up those buckets for this couple who's forty years old, they could contribute six thousand dollars each uh, to a Roth IRA. Then you can use just a standard taxable account. So. It's not tax deferred. Um, you'll pay, you know, any um, like dividends, capital gain, uh, potential capital gain payouts during the year. But as long as you don't sell the positions, you're not going to incur a big tax uh, event. And you can minimize taxes in that environment by sticking with passively invested uh, uh, investments like uh, either stock index mutual funds mm-hmm. or exchange traded funds, which are kind of like a mutual fund except they trade during the day, you know, yep. tick by tick. Um, and there's some real advantages to having this sudden uh, wealth of an extra hundred or 150000 which by retirement may be a million dollars if invested in certain different ways. If it's 100% equity, it's not a stretch for me to think you could turn that into somewhere close to a million dollars by the time retirement age. Having a million dollars sitting there along with your 401k kind of opens up some additional possibilities for retirement planning kind of on the front end of retirement. Yeah, certainly it'll, if, if you have like a taxable account, I mean, we always talk about, we never know what's the, the perfect or the right mix, taxable, tax-deferred, or tax-free accounts. So you, you want to fill up or have money in all three buckets, these three different tax buckets. So for someone having a large amount of potentially tax, like a taxable bucket of cash to pull on, gives you a lot of options for possibly retiring early and being able to live off of those uh, those taxable account dollars that um, aren't going to fill up kind of like that that income hurdle as much, where you have potentially the need to go on the the ACA marketplace. Well, get, that's the Affordable Care yeah, Act. So going you. through the exchanges, so it, it's kind of a classic uh, situation. Is hey, Paul, I'm 60, but we're not going to have health care. That's the only thing getting in the way. And for people that have this substantial bucket of money, as I call it so crudely, of investments uh, that is not tax-privileged, you can still have a pretty nice spend for the year, but it doesn't create a whole lot of taxable income, and then therefore you might qualify for substantial discounts for health care. That's where it really can come in. What about potentially conversion, Roth conversions at that time uh, on the front end of retirement? because you have that large taxable account, that might be something you'd look at too. Yeah, certainly. So because what you're just trying to do is pay less tax now than you may in the future. So if you're in a, a low income tax year, you're possibly retired early. Your only income may be coming from like a taxable account where you're only paying the, the tax on the gains. Right. Um, you have presumably a relatively low uh, income for the year. So what a, a possible strategy would be is to try to convert the amount of dollars in a traditional IRA over to a Roth IRA up to that um, that tax hurdle, maybe the 12% tax bracket, for example. So it allows you to convert at a, tel- a 12% tax rate rather than maybe a 22 or 30 plus percent tax bracket down the road in the future when you when you need to start taking distributions from a traditional IRA. And that tax hump can happen because if you don't do any Roth, if you're not able to do any Roth conversions, and let's say you have a substantial 401k slash IRA rollover, uh, you know, if that continues to compound between early retirement and by the time you're 72 now, uh, all of a sudden you can have this very large 
tax privileged account that you're now you're with you're forced to take withdrawals out of, mm-hmm. and that can give you a an extraordinarily large a jump in your tax bracket down the road. It's not uncommon at all, is it? Right. So you're referring to the required minimum distribution at age 72. And for some people, they may not need to start taking withdrawals or as large a withdrawal as the government is imposing on them through this required minimum. So I think that's like a planning strategy down the road that you can try to siphon off some of these dollars now so that it minimizes the required minimum distribution later, you have a little better control over your income maybe when you need it. And, okay, so that just, again, that's an, and it kind of creates this potential increase of options down mm-hmm. the road. Now what about the allocation? So for a 40-year-old couple, um, we generally recommend a much higher allocation towards stocks given the scenario that they've already provided, about, provided us. It's going to be unique for everybody. But they presumably have 40, 50 years easily of uh, life ahead of them. And probably 20 until retirement if it's even an early retirement. Exactly. So they have a very long investment window where the short-term up and down fluctuation of the market is not going to have a big impact on their, their investments because they may not need to draw from those, at least possibly for another 20 years. So it's uh, appropriate to have in investment scheme, bonds and stocks that maybe reflect the timing of when you need those funds. So higher stock position would be more recommended than holding bonds because the bonds So what, what's your allocation for that, if it's you? If it's me, personally, no yeah. one else, I'm right. 100% stock. Okay, me too. Um, other people don't have the, you know, the investment acumen and, and, and not be able to weather Or the tolerance the for the... For the th- throwing up occasionally when, exactly. it, when it appears that we've lost a third of our money, seemingly. <laughs> right. So much of it is behavior like we always talk about. So I can, I can spout you know, the importance of it from an investment standpoint, but if you can't stay invested during the tough times, then it doesn't do you any good. So that's, uh, it's really important because that will be the undoing. What if someone is fearful? We were, we're seeing lots of uh, headlines. First of all, before I go to that, uh, what would your if it's your child, your forty-year-old child, and they come to Dr. Fred Gertz and say, "What do I do under this circumstance?" Just conceptually, what would your allocation? They say the same thing. Except I, I'd go probably seventy thirty. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, one, one, well, there's no right answer. Yeah, right. right? There's no right or wrong answer. Right. One one additional thing. I'm not, did they say they're maxing out on their four hundred one k? They didn't say they're maxing. If they're not out. maxing they're, out, there's. Uh, they're, so they should max out. Well, they're putting in 10 to 15% in their 401ks, so they may or may not. They should be maxing out through their earned income and then live off their uh, inheritance for a while. So, so you don't want to put it in a separate. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, so you, even though you're in effect, you're doing the same thing. You're not taking your money from your farm and putting it into your IRA. You're taking your money from your job and putting your IRA right. and then living off your, right. your farm. Yeah, and, and that's really common, you know, and it, it kind of stretches people's brains a little bit. It's kind of like taking money from one pocket, putting in the other, but it's just more sensible way to do that. Yeah, I would be 100% equity for sure. I, I'd pick something as simple as a world total market yeah. index if they wanted to make it real simple. Uh, you can invest in the U.S. if you just want to invest in the U.S. total return, uh, total market index. You can do that through Fidelity at pretty much zero cost. There's never zero cost. There's always something, but essentially zero cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I would do. Um, th- now, you know, it's easy to dispense advice like that, but maybe, and again, this is going to seem like a barber telling people they should get a haircut. Uh, 
they really ought to hire a financial advisor and get a financial plan done. Or if they have the ability to create their own financial plan and have the interest in doing that and educating themselves, it's certainly possible to do that. But a more peaceful life is one where, okay, we can spot out all these ideas, but when you see them on paper and you start to see, okay, well, what if I'm 80% stocks for the next 20 years versus 100 and you actually start to see the impact of that, that might impact the decision ultimately of what to do with those funds, wouldn't it? Yeah, and, and you never know what you don't know, which is like the tough thing. So th- we always Oh, that never bothered me. Never stopped me. <laughs> here, here you are today. Um, but yeah, I think, I think for most folks, it's like, you know, they're, they're able to do this themselves. It's not a, a matter of capability. It's a matter of desire for a lot of folks, time. Uh, but then there's the You have to also guessing. know what it is, right? What is it? So that's the, Fred, right. this has always frustrated me. Now, I'm biased because I'm in the advice dispensary business, right? But there's nothing more frustrating. Well, it probably is more frustrating things. But it's very frustrating to have someone just kind of flippantly say, well, I'm, I'm going to do it myself. Yeah. And if I ask them to write it down, what? it's going to be bizarre definitions of right. what it is. Yeah. The other thing is we, we really don't have uh, full information here. Sure. If, if there are other assets are $100,000 uh, and this is $300,000, that's one thing. If there are other assets are a million dollars, that's a different picture. So as an advisor, you don't, you don't take a partial picture. You have to have the, the whole picture to actually. Well, for sure. For instance, what if they said, oh, and by the way. Uh, one of my parents is uh, has the onset of dementia, and it looks like they're going to need round-the-clock care, and we're going to sort of be responsible for it. We got a completely different answer. Or this is only one piece of the farm, and the, the oh yeah, for, you're right. There's another you know three million dollars of farmland that come at us when mom and dad wake up on a cloud. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's a good point. I, I think we'll, we're just trying to be a little generic without that information. I think the essence is. You know, max out your retirement plans, unless they're really crappy plans. You know, uh, you know, certainly you're, they're getting their match if there's a match with just what they're doing. Uh, but from a generic standpoint, big picture, if it's money that's going to be hanging, you're going to basically have a 50-year time horizon. I don't see any purpose personally for having any of it invested in bonds. But there probably are some reasons uh, for some people. And keep your t- costs low. Uh, try to keep your taxes minimal. All those things are easily done through index mutual funds or index exchange traded funds. So that's kind of what I would do. But I think the best advice doesn't have to be us is go out and find yourself a fee-based financial planner and advisor and get a plan if you don't have one. Uh, get one written and then start throwing all these assumptions at that plan. If every every customer... <coughs> We're like this. You'd have a great life. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, the, you know, it's interesting, Fred. People will come to us and they'll have a half million dollars or a million dollars or two million dollars, and whether they have one million or five million or five hundred thousand, they're almost sheepishly act like, well, certainly everybody's got more money than this. Everybody feels like everybody, even if they're fortunate enough to maybe have accumulated a large sum of money, uh, you know, that most people would, you know, define as large. There's still this feeling that, well, everybody sort of has this. And when I, when I tell the millionaire next door prospective client that how rare it really is, uh, they're a little bit stunned. Um, I said, well, considering about half the people that draw Social Security, that's 100% of their income. So you know that there's a, there's a large population of retirees that are, are living just on Social Security, and that would probably be kind of tough. So very few people will have a half a million or a million dollars with no debt, 
going into retirement. Um, and, and, and it sort of, I, I almost think that for many people, table stakes now to retire is probably a half a million. That's a broad brush, probably unfairly too broad, but. Yeah, depending yeah, on the pension from, situation. Yeah, I, I, I'm just saying if I had to pick a number after 38 years, I'd say, oh, you probably really why want to walk out with a half a million. What would your number be? It depends on how much you spend. You know, of course. If, you know, obviously. So it's like if you're a big spender, then that doesn't even come close to it. If you're someone who just lives on pretty, you know, normal So living, let's just say uh, – uh, I know some clients with a couple hundred thousand dollars that are living the life they want. Uh, for sure. Because they're, you know, they're it, not asking too much. And they they haven't built up all these needs in life. And they're, they're doing everything between that and Social Security. It, granted. And, and, and it's always – and you're right. That's such a it's a spectrum, right? Yep. But let's look at a let's look at a newly minted pre-retiree couple in their early 60s. Uh, so you have to plan on 25 to 30 years, probably of of we don't know about health span, but lifespan uh, certainly. And suppose between this couple, uh, they have uh, I don't know what would be a kind of a reasonable joint social security if it was sort of average uh 30 grand 35 grand a year probably three grand a month let's just go with that and let's suppose they need uh so that's three and maybe they need sixty thousand a year spend so they need another couple thousand uh so you would say okay if you use the four percent kind of a guideline i won't call it a rule uh four percent uh, you're probably going to need what do we need to get twenty four thousand uh, you know, that's $600,000. So that's, that's kind of, if I would think for most people that want a 50 or $60,000 lifestyle combined with a joint uh, social security, yeah. that's where I always kind of come in around that 400, probably to $600,000 range for that type of lifestyle. And of course, anything beyond that, you can yeah. just, probably, that may, that may seem overwhelming to people who are just starting. But again, if you do it early and do it, uh, Systematically, that's certainly achievable. Yeah, I think it's stunning to people that are in their 50s that are anywhere close because now that might bring in some pessimism. And there's still some things you can do. And again, we're painting with broad brushes, admittedly, here. But as you said, you give me a newly minted employee, you know, someone who's just entering the workforce. I mean, you have to go out of your way not to have a million dollars, I think, in real terms. If you're starting out in your mid twenties, well, uh, you have to adhere to Ryan's advice and hold down your your spending. Of course. <laughs> so, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. In the end of the day, if, if when I look at every millionaire next door that walks into our, it's almost to a to a person or to a couple. There's very similar. Uh, you know, they were good savers because they weren't big spenders or because they were good savers, they couldn't be big spenders, right? And so it kind of feeds both sides of that equation. But when you look at historical returns for the great companies of America and the world, assuming that it's, and it's a big assumption that, you know, the next 30, 40, 50 years uh, that, uh, you know, the great companies of America and the world will compound somewhere around 10% a year, I don't, I don't find that such a stretch. I don't think there's any reason to think it couldn't. You got to go out, you know, that means you're, so the people that will not make it, they'll go out and they'll buy a fancy BMW instead of a used practical car. They'll buy a house that's a hundred or 200,000 more than they probably should. The -hmm. banks will lend them the money because they qualify on paper. They'll trade that car every three or four years instead of every seven, eight, nine, or 10 years. Uh, 
Um, they'll spend you know fifteen thousand on an engagement ring instead of five. They'll go to Starbucks every day for five days a week, joint couple, and you know, and, and spend fourteen dollars a day at, at Starbucks. I mean, you just don't do and do don't do all those things and invest a hundred percent in equities, and I'll be stunned. It's, yeah. Again, we have to be careful. I can't say you're going to have a right. million dollars, but if history is any guide, you'll be you'll have more options on the front end of retirement than most people. Yeah. For you, some think people an, you think that's an overstatement? No, but some people it may not be the BMW. It may be the, the big red truck. <laughs> or really the SUV. You yeah, know, yeah. You, I, I see these young couples uh, driving, you know, when they drive by in their brand new SUV. Now, maybe they have wealth beyond what I'm aware of, but they can't all. Yeah. You know, and I see the 32-year-old uh, driving it, and I'm thinking, wow, that's an eighty or $90,000 car. I'm like, wow, I don't drive an eighty or 1000 so I'm not being judgmental. I'm just saying well, yeah. you're we, right. We, it's not. We, it's not we, the BMW. It could, it's fill in the blank. It's, yeah. not, it's easy to spend sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars on a yeah. car. Yeah, we, I think we are being judgmental, but that's is a good is a good judgment. <laughs> I, well, in the backdrop of history, you'd have to say that uh, uh, that most, not everybody, but most people could have a much better retirement than they than they're going to have had just a little planning now if you come out of the mean streets and you know you just you know you got the wind against you but you know then again i i could say that i have too many clients that have have done that and still become the millionaires next door and when i say millionaires next door it's, that's not me saying you got to be a millionaire millionaire next door to have a good retirement as you said ryan some people with you know have saved a couple hundred thousand dollars in that in social security and they're you know because that's what their lifestyle's been and and, and they they can't even spend that. Yep. I think I, we go ahead. I, I think the point just you know the main is to save early and save often. You know, and and not allow your lifestyle to dictate how much you save. Allow your saving to dictate your lifestyle, um, and it allows you to try to put yourself on a good path. And I think you know most most people that I I know and I'm like I've kind of like become friends with are already on that kind of a, a train. But I think that's because they had a good role models to look up to that kind of put them on that path and like so much of what we learn about money and investing is really a pass down from the generation before us so you're kind of kind of like being born in the u.s you're you're lucky to be born in right, the u.s for sure compared to most countries around the world you you have that leg up over so many of the population already just by sheer luck of being born here well that also translates over to having parents that maybe were good savers or were a little bit more involved in their own finances and that by just sheer living with your parents and observing their spending and saving habits translates down to yours as well. I think that's yeah. true, Fred. Sure, and, and you have to, as uh, a, a little aside here, but Susie Orman, who's a University of Illinois graduate, was invited to speak to some uh, uh, counselors or, or people who work in uh, student personnel work, and they, they asked her for advice about how to get ahead, and she said, uh, so, you know, work hard, uh, study, uh, be aggressive about your career and so on, which seems like 100% reasonable, but she was in, uh, banned by the organization because she was judgmental. And yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you may be a victim, but you can't act like a victim. You, you may have all the problems you talked about, but that doesn't get you very far. You have to actually, uh, go forward on your own against very difficult kind of odds. So. Yeah, you're going to be 60 regardless, right? Yeah. I mean, you're either going to have money or you won't. And, uh, and of course, yeah. And being a victim doesn't pay off in the long run. You may be a victim, but 
being a victim the whole your whole life has to has to be detrimental. What do you think about the idea of save like a pessimist and invest like an optimist? Do you think that's well, would be a reasonable basis? Up to a certain point, I think. Like in my case, I probably did that too long, <laughs> <laughs> and that can happen too, right? Yeah, we can be overly frugal with the one life we get, and I think I've seen that happen. Uh, you know, the strangest reaction from a prospective client is when you tell them that they're going to have a higher lifestyle in retirement than they than they are working. Yeah. Uh, and it's particularly, that's generally the people that have found a way to keep their lifestyle from creeping up constantly. Yep. Um, I mean, that's the thing about inflation, Fred. Uh, even, you know, they're talking about transitory inflation, okay? So this is the Federal Reserve saying, oh, yeah, we know we're building... Yeah inflation in the near term above our 2% target. In fact, year over year, uh, uh, producer prices are up over 7% a year. And then at the, that's the wholesale area. And then the cons consumer price index is up, I think, 3.6% year over year. So we're already starting to see, you know, lumber's up 300%, aluminum's up, you know, 150% or something like that. And this, this, this idea of, I think, I think the Fed's getting too much of a pass on this transitory inflation thing because once prices go from a dollar to a dollar fifty, I'm I'm exaggerating here. Mm. Okay, even if you get now where we don't have high ongoing inflation, you're starting at that base of a hundred of at a dollar fifty instead of a dollar, and that that that's a real problem, particularly in retirement. Yeah, it's a problem for the uh, retiree. It's also a problem for the Fed. The uh, the argument seems to be that well, we've had four decades of uh, very low inflation, but the, the way we got there was to break the back of inflation, which was a very painful process. And so that expectation of low inflation is here, but it's not gonna last forever. So the question is, when do they when do they step in? It's a very difficult question. And it's and, a political question, too, sure. because in order to do the things that Volcker did, uh, Federal Chairman Volcker and Reagan did, they had to put us into a serious recession. I mean, what yeah. politician wants to put in that kind of policy. Yeah, again, going back to this uh, uh, argument by um, Larry Summers, the, the, the Fed would say, or this, the, the people who are hopeful would say, well, the Fed will tone it down gradually, we'll have this soft landing and uh, be back on course again, but the Fed is not very good about uh, soft landings or you know, monetary policy as a blunt instrument. So again, I think uh, um, that uh, it's a problem right now it probably won't be if we handle it correctly, but it could be. So the uh, people investing and people retiring have to prepare for that. And, you know, you, you could argue that the Federal Reserve, historically speaking, hasn't done a really great, you know, I don't think there's any reason to assume that the Federal Reserve is going to get it right. Because, well, again, there's too much politics in it. Well, uh, again, uh, uh, but for 2007 to 2009, you can tell a pretty good story that, uh, prior to 2007, we had something called the Great Moderation. And the Great Moderation was starting in the early 80s, we had a period of low inflation and low unemployment that, that continued for uh, close to three decades. And we sort of got back on that track after that. So there was a lot of optimism about the Fed being able to turn all the, the handles and switches and so on and keep things on an even keel. But I think if when crunch time comes, that's not easy to do. For sure. Uh, what do you think of this idea? Actually, before I do this, uh, this the, the, a text came in and says, Paul, Fred has a... Uh, okay, Fred has a... Uh, oh, my name is David. That's in a different text. 
Please have Dr. Gertz comment on Biden's plan to eliminate the stepped-up basis for estates. How will that affect Illinois farm estates being passed on? Well, I think the the answer is if it passed, it would be uh, a really big change. And uh, and the fact is it's not going to pass. Uh, uh, there are all kinds of uh, reasons why it might be a good idea if you, you know, if I were going back to, to uh, start the uh, income tax again 100 years ago or so, uh, I, I would get rid of the stepped-up basis. Uh, because would, it, would you index for inflation then? Yeah, right. Explain and, to people the, the, the problem okay, with that. Well, uh, capital gains is a, a very complicated issue in regard to taxation. There are uh, two advantages in capital gains in terms of taxation. One is you can d- defer your tax into the future, which lowers the present value of the tax cost. Uh, the other is you pay at lower rates. So those are two advantages to having capital gains. The disadvantage is the government uh, doesn't just tax real gains. It taxes gains that uh, occur because of inflation. So, for example, if uh, we had a situation where prices doubled and your asset doubled. You're no better off than you were before, but the government would tax you on that uh, that uh, extra um, gain, and you'd end up with uh, less than you started with. So we have these three things working, two in favor of the, of the investor, one against the investor. So the best way to do it would be to get it right and, and get rid of all those, but you can't do that now. And getting rid of just one of them, the stepped-up basis, is probably not a – a particularly uh, a likely thing to happen. I think also it goes along with uh, the, the second part, uh, possibly taxing uh, capital gains at ordinary income t- rates, not at the uh, special capital gains rate. So if you had those two things happening simultaneously, it could be a really big impact. Yeah, I, I, I don't expect both of them are going to happen. I, no. I, I can't imagine that. Well, this goes, this goes way back, uh, before, even probably before you were involved, but back in the 70s, they, they passed – uh, stepped up basis. Right. Uh, Do you know what I was doing in the seventies? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they, they they got rid of the stepped up basis, and it lasted for one year, and they got that went back to. Uh, we should tell. Well, that's that, interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, what, what, what the stepped up basis means that uh, generally, when you sell an asset, uh, you don't, you only tax gains when they're realized. And when you sell an asset, then you have to pay a capital gains tax on the difference between what you paid for it and what it's worth now. That's true in almost every case. But if you die, the person who uh, and bequeath uh, uh, assets that have capital gains, the person who receives that doesn't have to pay tax on the increase from the time you bought it until the time that you die. They only start paying tax on the gain after after your death, and that's the that's called the stepped up basis. Here's a text. Uh, Hello, a recent article in Politico said that the Joint Committee on Taxation will recommend temporary tax cuts for other than high earners. As I understand it, the effective rate for those with taxable incomes from 50,000 to 100,000 will be 1.8%. My wife has 240,000 to eventually convert to a Roth. Am I correct in thinking that we should do a large conversion once the new rate is in effect, since it may be Temporary. Do you know what the marginal tax rate would be on income over a hundred thousand? Uh, no, amazing. I think that's, that uh, uh, that's wishful thinking. I don't think that's yeah. uh, certainly to, to the extent you think. Well, we we actually are giving instead of giving tax cuts now, we're giving checks in the mail. So it's possible that we might stop the checks in the mail and, and go to lower tax rates. But I, I doubt that. Uh, the Biden administration, I don't think, is suggesting lower tax rates. They're suggesting higher tax rates for high-income people. Yeah, that's, this is the first I'm hearing about this program, so I, I really I, I would don't not, know enough to answer I, it. I wouldn't base your 
financial plan on, on that happening. That probably makes sense. Okay. Um, Dr. Ed uh, Yardeni wrote an article, Another Roaring Twenties May Be Ahead. So we always seem to be living in unprecedented times, according to conventional wisdom, mostly because we don't spend enough time studying history. Well, isn't that the truth? <laughs> There's certainly a precedent for our curtain ti- uh, current times in the past, one that was uh, truly unprecedented back then, World War I, followed by the Spanish flu in 1918, infected 500 million people, killed as many as 50. And then he kind of does the qu- equation of adjusting for population, where this one really isn't as bad as the pandemic as that was. Wrote the good news is the is that the bad news during the previous precedent was followed by the Roaring Twenties. So far, the twenty twenties has started with the pandemic, but there are plenty of years left for prosperous nineteen twenties to become precedent for the current decade. If so, the driver of the coming boom will be technology enhanced productivity, as it was in the twenties. But what he went to write on, and I'm almost done with this. I thought was just pretty wise, but this is probably to you, like duh. Economics is about using technology to increase everyone's standard of living. I really hadn't thought about it that way. Someone said, what's the definition of that? And he's not saying that's the definition. Um, Free markets provide the profit incentives to motivate innovators to solve this problem. As they do, consumer prices tend to fall. Economics is about creating and spreading abundance, not about distributing scarcity. It seems like a lot of people focus on how are we going to distribute scarcity and they they don't recognize the kind yeah. of what economics is all about. Well, I, I think the the world has changed in terms of policy that uh, redistribution is uh, to the fore now. So the, the counter argument would be, uh, yes, we'll have this huge uh, technological uh, increase during the next uh, decade, but maybe it's all going to be captured by a very small number of people and the rest of us will be uh, kind of uh, – uh, lingering in the wilderness will be the ninety nine percent, or they'll be one percent. I don't think that's true, but that, that's the argument. So uh, I don't think it's going to solve all, all our problems. Now, again, the uh, uh, people don't usually uh, dispute John John F. Kennedy, but uh, his famous saying, which I don't think was new to him, was "A rising tide lifts all boats," and now they're saying "A, a rising tide lifts some boats, but, right. but not others." And and that's that's really a change in the last five or ten years that there's a Especially with the uh, uh, the party, the Democratic Party controlling Congress, that redistribution is really a, a much higher priority now than it used to be. They haven't done very much about it, and what they uh, attempt to do, I think, are pretty feeble. Uh, raising the minimum wage, things of that sort, maybe good, maybe bad, but it's not going to do very much for uh, redistributing from the, the top one percent to the the bottom. So again, I think that um, uh, what he's saying is true in terms of increasing the overall. Uh, level of output, but whether it will deal with the redistribution questions is another, another issue. He wrote, the 1920s ended with a stock market melt-up, followed by a meltdown. The 2020s may, have all, uh, may already be seeing a melt-up uh, begun on March 23rd. We live in interesting, though not unprecedented times. The Roaring Twenties could be a precedent for the Roaring 2020s. As Mark Twain observed, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Right. I've heard this theme before that, you know, uh, that uh, from another a friend of mine who's kind of a historian, a market historian, and that's kind of what he envisions well, in some format. No, I think that that's a possibility, but we, we uh, denigrated the uh, the Fed's abilities a little while ago, but I think this is the case where the Fed would uh, have something to, uh, to uh, have the ability to deal with it. But in particular, uh, a lot of people argue that the uh, – not a lot of people uh, were not first. Milton Friedman argued in particular that the uh, – 
crash in 1929 was a, a real problem. We were heading into a serious recession, but uh, malpractice by the Fed really converted that into a long-term depression. So I don't think we'll have that kind of, in quotes, malpractice again. And you, you could look at the uh, – we, we had bubbles in the, uh, in the late uh, 90s, and that really didn't ha- cause any kind of problem to the market. We had the housing bubble again, which did cause a huge disruption, but we managed to weather it without a great depression. And I'm not sure what the bubble is now, whether it's tech stocks or, or whatever. But again, uh, that may cause some problems, but I don't think it's a catastrophic kind of uh, end here. I always thought it was interesting that Gene Fama, Nobel Prize winner, always said, you know, he always argued against the idea of bubbles. That you only see bubbles afterwards. You can't yeah. see a bubble, you know, as it's happening. Uh, though everybody claims to. Ryan, some people are still waiting on their stimulus checks. <laughs> Is this going to get remedied? Uh, and, and what can people do that feel like they're owed a stimulus check, but somehow either didn't get as much as they sh- thought they were or they didn't get one at all? Yeah, so I think the federal government's response right now is, for most people, just file a return and file it sooner than later. That way they can start getting you in the system. They can check your your income history against uh, the thresholds by which you would be able to get some or a partial amount from any of these uh, these owed checks. And to date, there's been three, you know, one last year, one at the very beginning of, of this year, and then the most recent one, which was the largest. Um, and like not everybody they're saying needs to file a federal tax return because if you f- if you went online last year um, and you're and you use the um, the tax filer service um, that allows you to be in the system already, so you don't have to file a tax return if you don't normally do it. So you're in the system already. Um, and then also with the um, the 2020 tax returns, there is a section where you can claim this recovery rebate credit. Um, so whether it's for that first 1,200 stimulus check or the second $600 payment, um, it's part of the return process now. So you can you can fill this in and make sure you're getting what's owed to you. And some people might have just done math errors, you know, created some math errors along the way. And uh, so, you know, you want to, you know, people should check that just to make sure that they've done everything correctly. Yeah. And, and they also said some people, you know, as simple as just putting in the wrong Social Security number, they just typed the wrong number as it went in. So the the credit didn't show as like they would expect it. So even just simple errors. And some people don't file tax returns each year because right. they really don't need to. But with this, if they have some dependents, you know, then they might that might want they to. might have money. They should have been getting money. That yeah. could be the reason, true, that they, even though they're not really required to file, if they want to get that money, they're going to need to. Yeah, I don't think there's any any danger though of missing a deadline and losing the uh, payment. I think even if you don't get it when you think you should, you'll probably get it eventually if you're. Uh, diligent about uh, about finding out what's going on. Yeah, I, I my assumption is they'll eventually remedy it. I think most people are probably thinking, "I want my money and I want it now." Yeah. Um, and so that, that I think the government response is, "Well, here's a couple of the solutions. Pay, yeah. you know, go go <laughs> through the process." Gentlemen, I have is from a text. Uh, gentlemen, I have a non qualified variable annuity. My wife and I are both retired, but so far do not need any of the funds. The initial investment has grown tax free. It's our understanding that we do not have to take any RMDs. Uh, also that, I'm just reading small print here. If my wife and I get hit by a bus together, can our beneficiaries split the account, continue growing tax-free, or they have to take distributions like inherited IRA? So this is a non-qualified, which means it's not in a retirement plan. Uh, let's see. The it's initial- not even an IRA. I think it's no, just a, a, it's var- just a, a variable just annuity. Just straight variable annuity is what it sounds like. 
I don't believe there is a requirement. I, I'm a little rusty on variable annuities at the moment. I can't remember uh, whether they require that. I don't or, think so. Because I don't it's think not, so either. Because it's non-qualified, you're not getting that tax deferral benefit. Now, when it someone does inherit it, they get you know it's going to come at there's no preferential tax yeah. rates. It's, it's going to be ordinary rates. Uh, if they get hit by a bus, uh, will they be able, beneficiaries be able to split the account, continue growing it tax-free? I'm not so sure about that. I just don't know off the top of my head. So that's one I'm just going to admit I don't yeah. know the answer to that today. We do have a call. <laughs> we have a couple more minutes. We have John on line one. John, how are you? Yes, uh, I got a little comment on the uh, the, the tax. Uh, yes, sir. The third one. Uh, we were waiting on our uh, refund and all that, and I kept waiting and waiting. And then I read the fine print on the computer from the government file there. It said that if anybody had any uh, direct deposit from Social Security, yes, railroad retirement, or any other uh, federal uh, pension thing, something like that, right. uh, they would automatically send it into that uh, particular bank. So we checked the bank, and sure enough, there it was. Ah. Great. That's, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I bet other people may have gotten it, and maybe they just didn't realize they got it because they don't keep tight control of their checking right. account or whatever. Yeah. That, Very good. Well, all right. Thanks, John. Program. All right. Thank you. Bye. So uh, over the last year, the market's up more than 50%, the stock broad U.S. market. And so the question is, what does the stock market do after huge gains? I was reading an article by Ben Carlson, uh, who's a terrific writer. Uh, he shows the average gains following a 12-month gain of 50% or more since 1950. One year, minus 1.5%. Three years, up 42% in total return. I'm taking right. it. And in five years, 65%. Uh, so let's see. The S&P up around 48% over the last 12 months. The Dow up about 44 And the Russell 2000 small caps are up 86%. I think. How much was it down, though, uh, prior to uh, March 20th? Well, Fred, I, you know, a lot. Thir- oh, you know, thirty-four percent or so. So, uh, you know, that. But you know, you have to assume that some of these others were similar. They yeah. they went up fifty percent because they went down thirty right. or forty or twenty percent. Uh, so, I think that tells people. Uh, I think that combined, considering twenty years from now, the Dow will probably be at ninety thousand. Is probably a reason to not sweat the next few thousand points direction yeah. of the Dow. Yeah, I did a line before and after, and, and the, 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 if you've you know, fill in the points, the downturn just sort of goes away. You just have kind of a, uh, a moderate uh, growth rate over That's it. what's strange about the 1987 crash. If you look at a long-term chart, you can't, you, you can't even find it with a magnifying glass. But at real time, it's absolutely sheer terror. Uh, same with 2008, 2009. At some point, if it hasn't happened already, you take the lifetime chart of the broad U.S. stock market, and it almost fails to show up. And I, I think that's essentially the study of history anyway, and that's the case. Uh, so I don't think people need to be, I think you could be optimistic that just because we've had such a massive run up in the stock market, partially because it went down so much so quickly. Uh, anyway, that's all we have today. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money Radio. We'll be back in May, if you can believe it, the second week in May. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Dr. Fred Gertz, and thanks, Ryan Repko. Thanks for listening. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. 
Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.